fifteen crows on a playing field in Sirencester. Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and each episode I'm going to be feeding you steaming mouthfuls of mushed-up writing advice with the big plastic spoon of my voice. Did I say steaming? Yes, I did. Too hot to be eating yet. Tell you what, while you blow on it... I'll do an intro. So, uh, in case you're wondering where I'm at with my book at the moment, my current manuscript stands at 172,000 words. It's easily the longest thing I've written, and the first draft's not even finished yet. TBH, it's been easy to fall into a bit of downheartedness, not just because I'm given to pessimism, but because it's been going on for two years, and suddenly, for the first time in my life, I have the actual pressure of being a professional writer. This is completely uncharted territory for me. Now, I'm sure you're more psychically robust than me, but all of us, all of us who've ever written anything have probably experienced the feeling of being overwhelmed. Novels are huge projects, even those that run to sensible word counts. Some days you'll just be like, what the hell am I doing? I'm completely out of my depth. So first off, I'd like to suggest that being out of one's depth is good for the soul. Certainly an awareness of that proves that you're not a raging narcissist. Well done, you. Two, if you're finding it hard, that means you're challenging yourself. That way lies growth, self-knowledge and a whole bunch of good things. Well done you. Three, it doesn't matter if you fail. This particular story won't get written. Yes, financially it would be ideal if every egg you sat on hatched into a bestseller. Some eggs just contain pidgeys. You may feel embarrassed, but fundamentally it's not important. You're important, your happiness is terribly important. I'm not trivialising the passion you feel for your book, your quest, but the validation and sense of legitimacy you dream of does not lie at the end of this particular rainbow, my friend. If you solve a book, then it becomes something detached from you. It goes on, it has its own life, but you're still going to have to move on to the next project. This shit never ends. Therefore, the only thing is to focus on process. How can we be calm while the storm ranges all around us? Remember that most writers in interviews on social media at book festivals are trying to promote themselves. They're lying. They want you to read their book. So don't judge yourself against their claims of professionalism or how easy they find it or whatever. A lot of authors are super chilled out about the work they produce and the work is shit. They're calm because they don't know how shit they are. But we... We can be calm while owning the knowledge that most of what we do is bad. That's okay. Most of what I write is pants. That's not me being pessimistic. It genuinely is. I have to read it, right? I'm not actually better at writing than anyone else. Not that you were putting me on a pedestal and saying I was brilliant, but you know, I... I've done a book, right? I'm doing a podcast where I talk about writing advice. That would assume that I think I'm brilliant. I, I don't. I think I know a lot about craft, but I tell you what, like most of what I write on a daily basis is quite bad but sometimes some stuff with a lot of work and a lot of help from others has turned out all right would I rather hide from my fear of humiliation or would I rather tell stories I don't even have to think about it stories 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 choose the path of least resistance if you need to no shame in that take rests when you need to but Whenever you can, lean into the difficulties. All of you who have struggled with writing and have kept doing it, I think you're brilliant. I genuinely do. That shows real bravery, even if you don't think so, even if you think I'm blowing smoke up your bottom. Writing is not, however, a grim obligation. It's a choice. You don't have to be good. That will come in time. You just have to choose it. And that's the end of another weird, possibly helpful rant. Anyway, if you'd like to submit to the show, I'll tell you how at the end. This week's piece is called Bookbinder, and it's by Catherine. 
Once upon a time, we had tons of magic. We had magicians who made it good and not wild, but the queen died and took loads of magic with her, and the king died and took more magic. I squinted at the handwriting of my eight-year-old self. So the magicians died and some dragons died. Magic got scary and got into books and paintings and statues and gardens and stuff and made them alive. Billagos took over places without dragons to eat them. With no people to use magic, we had to get people to bind it. The people who bind the magic in books are librarians. The best were called bookbinders. And the best bookbinder who ever lived was... What are you reading? Meryl took the tatty pieces of sewn-together construction paper. I looked up and smiled at her. Old school project of mine. Mum found one of the dogs carrying it round and sent it over. She thought we'd be amused. Magic and My Great-Great-Grandad by Elsinore Bookbinder, she read off the cover. Nice choice of crayon. She handed the little book back to me. While the subject of your ancestor is currently on the table, have you considered where you might follow in his travelling footsteps? Nope. I swivelled my chair towards the desk. Elsie? Merrill. You can't avoid the librarian loan programme forever. Your deadline to choose your own destination is in two months. She used her stern pay-attention voice. And here are my cuts. Once upon a time, we had tons of magic. So this is quite a nice ambiguity of tone here. As an opening bid, it's unusual. You're slamming together the high register of storytelling with this informal, slangy voice. But also, by saying the word magic, you immediately locate the story in a genre. All pretty good. Not sure why you've gone for metric tons, T-O-N-N-E-S, over imperial tons, T-O-N-S. Perhaps this is a story about French wizards. Perhaps it's a parable about an evil foreign council in magic Brussels, imposing ludicrous and restrictive laws on spellcraft until a plucky band of rebels throw off the yoke and declare magical independence. But then... Oh no! They got all their potion ingredients from the continent and their wizarding academies were maintained by generous grants from the council and as the whole shit show collapses, they all quit. But they're fine because they're millionaires. The subtext there was I was talking about Brexit. We had magicians who made it good and not wild. But the queen died and took loads of magic with her and the king died and took more magic. So... This is fine. I'm going to address how I think it works as an opener in a moment, but for now I just want to take issue with the formulation loads of. Be very wary of trying to ape children's language by dropping in cute little intensifiers everywhere. You've said tons of, loads of, there's another loads of later on. For a start, this assumes that children make no distinction between written and spoken registers, which is demonstrably bollocks. They read books. They understand writing has a different audience and purpose. Think about a child reading a book report or poem. They're often desperately solemn and formal. The danger with appropriating these twee quirks is you sound like someone doing a parody of a child rather than an act child. I'm immediately thinking of a specific published novel, which I won't name because I don't want to sound like a judgmental asshole. but it has a child narrator and I got about a page into reading it and I was like, oh, fuck you! I was so angry because it was this awful ersatz pastiche. It was peppered with try-hard signifiers. No, it was bukkakied in them, just drenched. It was dripping with this anxious performative display of, look, 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 this is what a kid would say. I just, no. And Now, this is nowhere near as bad, Catherine. Your writing really, really isn't. I'm not saying that, but remember, less is more. An eight-year-old's writing is characterised by lots of simple clauses. 
They're not having to constantly prove that they're an eight-year-old by adding generic language appropriate to their age. And, and by writing in a what-would-an-eight-year-old-say mode rather than a what-would-Elsie-say mode, you're depriving us of insight into her character because she just sounds like a generic child. She could be anyone. But the Queen died and took loads of magic with her and the King died and took more magic. I don't know if this is a deliberate echo of E.M. Forster's confusing distinction between plot and story and aspects of the novel. If it is, on one hand, kudos for the wink. On the other, it's a shame to allude to a cornerstone of creative writing pedagogy while forgetting its core message. Lest we forget, Forster opined, The King died and then the Queen died is a story. The King died and then the Queen died of grief is a plot. If it is in a story, we say, and then? If it is in a plot, we ask, why? But he also said, the backbone of a novel has to be a story. A story can only have one merit, that of making the audience want to know what happens next. Now, Forster gets really snooty about our desire for story later on, asserting, Curiosity is one of the lowest of the human faculties. You will have noticed in daily life that when people are inquisitive, they nearly always have bad memories and are usually stupid at bottom. And I think... I think he's sort of joking. But let's look at how well this opening paragraph fulfills that key requirement of a story, making the reader want to know what happens next. Do I, having read this excerpt, want to know what happens next? Honestly... No, I don't care. Because it's backstory. It's artfully delivered backstory for sure. This is a clever way of dumping in exposition. Oh, it's a piece of found text written by the narrator. That's genuinely a really smart, interesting strategy. But as your opening paragraph, as your opening offer, an info dump is still an info dump, however sneakily you disguise it. Do we need to know this information? Possibly. But... And this is the fundamental question, writers of SF and fantasy, indeed writers of literary fiction, your characters have backstory too. This is the fundamental question you need to ask yourself when redrafting. Do we need to know this now? Do we need to know this now, Catherine? Obviously I'm suggesting that the answer is no. We need that thing that Forster believes is so crass and vulgar, yet so vital to a successful novel. We need story. I squinted at the handwriting of my eight-year-old self. When people submit to the podcast, they usually do so in plain text, so I can't always see where the italics might go, but I'd suggest, for clarity's sake, you'd want the previous paragraph italicised so we know it's found text. Then this line could snap back into the actual narrative. I'm, I'm not going to go through the next paragraph sentence by sentence because what I've already said applies. Science fiction and fantasy are remarkably brittle world-building-wise. Just the act of summarising your world makes it seem less believable, more contrived. You're throwing out a lot of generic terms here. Magic, dragons, binding. It all feels very familiar. But I bet if we saw those things in situ, so to speak, they would feel a lot more three-dimensional and less like tropes because your magic and your dragons might be different to the ones we think we know. This is the very real danger of shoving in prologues for fantasy novels. I say this as someone who shoved in a prologue for his last fantasy novel and is currently trying to arm wrestle his editor into allowing him two for the next one. This bit here functions like a Star Wars title crawl, right? It's a mini prologue welded onto the front of your first chapter. And it flattens out your world and reduces it to a Wikipedia entry. Now, of course, my knowledge of fantasy tropes tells me that this may not be the full story. Indeed, the people of this world may have been sold a pack of lies to cover the dark truths of the ruling class who rose to power in the wake of this ancestral chaos. Who knows? And, and you know, fr frankly... <laughs> <laughs> who cares? Because unless we're riding pickaback on a cool, imperiled person who has to make difficult choices, 
the world and its history mean nothing. What are you reading? Merrill took the tatty pieces of sewn-together construction paper. I love the detail of the sewn-together construction paper. That's a strong, specific choice. And it's a form of book binding. It's on theme. But again, Catherine, you've shown us some sewing. I ask you, <clears throat> so what? Where's the conflict? Where's the tension? Where's the dilemma? Where's the emotional investment? A nicely observed bit of downtime does not an opening make. Let's jump ahead a few lines. Magic and My Great-Great-Grandad by Elsinore Bookbinder, she read off the cover. Nice choice of crayon. She handed the little book back to me. Well, the subject of your ancestor is currently on the table. Have you considered where you might follow in his travelling footsteps? Oh my god, no. Absolutely no reader is fooled by this transparent attempt to heap tons of information into the first page. This isn't an info dump, it's an info landfill. While the subject of your ancestor is currently on the table. Who speaks like that? Who drops such clangingly literal segues? They sound like a, a dozen moles in a human suit who've read one 1930s self-help manual on the art of casual conversation. If your character sounds like a soulless puppet in this moment, that's because they are. When they said, nice choice of crayon, that was them being a human reacting to the world around them, right? Then you, the author, think, oop, better chivy the plot onwards, and you sort of swoop down to possess them. Speaking of choices, meet friend, you face a choice which will come to divine much of the life which follows. Allow me to state it out loud, that we might better appreciate its poignant consequences. Do I contradict myself? A moment ago I was saying you need story. Now I'm criticising the intrusion of exactly that. What's going on? Story's great, but I want to suggest to you that presenting your protagonist with a small, significant problem in the moment is one of the best ways to get the ball rolling. That problem can be a microcosm of a bigger conflict. In fact, it's best if it impacts on the greater conflict somehow, but we need something happening in the narrative present, not abstract, tangible. There are other strategies, of course. I don't want to be doctrinaire about this, but what I'm sure doesn't work is having two characters chew over a conversation they've clearly had many times before, dropping in lots of information for the reader's benefit. You can't avoid the librarian loan programme forever. Your deadline to choose your own destination is in two months. Would she really use the full name, The Librarian Loan Programme? Surely you've only phrased it that way for the reader's benefit, because both characters know it's the elephant in the room, right? They've talked about it before. When Meryl says, your deadline to choose your own destination is in two months, wouldn't she just say, deadline's in two months? Because they both know what the deadline's for, right? But she's stating it in this clunky way for a third party the reader. And look, I concede that all conversations between characters are only going on for the reader's benefit. That's what fiction is. I, I understand that it's, it's not a it's not a digest of, of real people that someone's written down. These are these are all completely fake. I you know I know that, but it shouldn't be this obvious. I, I want to have to do some detective work. Curiosity may be the dreadfully low-preserved Neanderthals and dullards, but it's the reason I read. Forster may tut at Sir Walter Scott's trivial mind and heavy style, but I'd much rather read Ivanhoe than Howard's End. But to choose story over plot, and of course I don't think you need to pick one or the other, I don't even agree with Forster's judgmental terms, but to decide you want to write something that works partially by being cool and exciting, that doesn't offer you any more shortcuts than someone writing their deep, important, realistic novel about middle-class people and their interminable existential malaises. You still need style, heart, intelligence and brio. Catherine, 
I want you to take Elsie and put her in the shit. Open with her in peril. Magic exists? Great. Give us some fucking magic. Don't hold back. Don't save all your fireworks for the end of a novel your readers might never reach if you don't up your game. Take stuff you were saving for the finale and give it to us now. You'll come up with even cooler stuff to replace it. I promise you. Trust yourself to do that. It doesn't have to be physical peril either. It could be gut-wrenching emotional peril. Why do otherwise? That's my main question to you, right? And that's the one you've got to ask yourself. Why do otherwise? Why hold back? Why deny your reader that at the beginning of the novel? Uh, why slowly ease us into this world, starting at its most boring point? Unless you have brilliant answers to those questions, go big immediately. And that's it. If you'd like your work to be featured on the show, go to my website, timclairpoet.co.uk and click on the link in the show notes. If you'd like to support me, buy my novel, The Honours. I'm sorry for ranting about how difficult I find writing. I realise that that is not necessarily interesting to you and it is not necessarily very sympathetic. I'm doing fine. I have my good days. The day before yesterday, I was really flying through it. Yesterday, I had a bit of a shit time, right? But it's okay. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Of course, if you have any questions that you want to ask me, you'd like me to address on the show, you can also email me via the contact me link on my website timclairpoet.co.uk I'd love to hear from you I'd love to hear what you think works I'd love to hear I wouldn't love to hear what you think doesn't work but I'm resigned to the fact that you may tell me that and it is useful and thank you to those of you who have uh, compassionately told me things that you thought I was doing less well I appreciate it I'm working on it and trying to get better so I can make this as good as I can for you I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that in a few weeks I'm going to become a dad it is very likely that I'm going to cap this uh, first season of Death of a Thousand Cuts at 20 episodes because then a child's going to come into the world and you know much as I love uh, discussing uh, robust ideas about uh, creative writing ped pedagogy I would quite like to hang out with my daughter for a little bit so I'm probably I think it's sensible rather than me trying to struggle through and causing a huge rift in my family as I, I, I tried to record this at three in the morning when I mean my child's not gonna be asleep then obviously I know what I'm facing but like I, I think I'll probably take a few weeks break just to kind of uh, do family stuff and then I'll hopefully come back with a second season so in the meantime what you can be doing is uh, you can send me questions you can send me your work if you've submitted before you are very much welcome to submit again but you will be at the back of the queue um if you, there's people you'd like me to interview, if there's specific authors, um, I'm really happy to get in touch with people if there's anyone you want me to speak to. If there's, if you'd like me to speak to agents or editors, let me know. But any of that, and all of you just want to say hello, would love to hear from you. Um, and just all the best with your writing. It's really, I really appreciate everyone who's shared the show on Twitter or Facebook, everyone who's done like little blog posts about it. I, I, I really appreciate it. it. It really makes all the difference it's impossible for me to say that in a generic way without sounding super super glib but um that's the only way people find it right so every time you share it you're helping other people stumble across it and those people might be struggling with their novels and it might give them a little boost or i suppose it might make them paralyzingly uh, self-critical and and then stop them from ever writing one of those two things anyway in any case thank you very much that's what i'm trying to get around to until next time good luck with your writing you're great